Welcome to Building the Future, Freedom, Prosperity, and Foreign Policy, a podcast series focused on updating the United States soft power playbook to meet the hopes and aspirations of developing countries because it's in America's interest to do so. I'm Dan Rundy, Senior Vice President at CSIS. There are a lot of global challenges out there, so let's get started. Welcome back to Building the Future with Dan Rundy. My name is John Simon, and I'm a senior advisor here at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I'm also a founding partner at Total Impact Capital, an impact investment vehicle that I helped establish after several years of public service that allowed me to shape and lead U.S. global development finance policies. I am pleased to guest host this week's episode on enabling a functional, reliable, and secure digital ID. I'm thankful to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation for supporting our work on this issue. I'm very pleased to have this conversation with Kate Wilson and Paul Leckis, two thought leaders who spend a significant portion of their time thinking about the risks, opportunities, and impact of digital technologies on global development. Kate is a Chief Executive Officer at Digital Impact Alliance, where she's implementing her long-held vision of leveraging digital technology products, new technology policies, and updating business model practices to make transformative change in the lives of the underserved and decrease the growing global digital divide. Meanwhile, Paul is with the National Security Commission on Artificial Intelligence, where he's the Director of Research and Analysis and a Senior Legal and Strategy Advisor, helping fulfill the congressional charge to consider the methods and means necessary to advance the development of artificial intelligence and other emerging technologies to comprehensively address the national security and defense needs of the United States. Kate and Paul, it's such a pleasure to have you on for this episode. Thank you so much for joining me. Kate. One of the things we keep hearing on this topic is that digital ID is only as good as the public trust in the system. What does that mean, practically speaking, and what are some ways the trust deficit can be overcome? Thanks so much for that question. Um, it's a pretty fascinating, it's a really big question too, which I just want to know. You know, the, really the question is, is like, how do you have trust in digital ID? But I think we really want to take a step back and say, how do you have trust in information systems and data that then is used from information systems that then sort of surround it. And so that's a topic that no matter who you are, where you happen to be placed, has been much in the news and has affected all of us wherever you happen to be over the last few years as scandals have erupted. Um, but this is not sort of a new question. It's really how is your data used and where is that information stored? So practically speaking, when I think about sort of what was required for public trust in a system that stores my identifier, the thing that identifies me as me and provides a whole host of other markers, my education status, my financial status, my health status, these are all really big topics. So what you need to have in order for trust in the system to be in place is you need to have a trusted institution you need to have some level of permissions that are about your ability to access and control and manage that data. And you need to make sure that you understand the rules upon which that data can be shared and the entities with which it can be shared. And what's the vested interest of the entity that holds that data in sharing its information? So do you trust that institution? Now, this is different whether you're talking about the public sector or the private sector, and it varies dramatically by country and trust in government. All things that have been increasingly problematic, I think, is, as debates as society over the last few years. 
Practically speaking, I think in order to overcome that is you need greater transparency in the system about how the system was constructed, the business model behind it, as well as how that data is used and shared. What is the alternative to government for a trusted third party for a digital ID? Well, I would say that each day you have a digital ID that is housed with multiple people. Every information system in the world actually starts with first identifying you as you and financial information for the most part that is attached to you. That could be me logging into my email. That could be me logging into providing medical forms. There's an ID that is deliberately set with it. So I think that when you talk about a national digital ID, that's a very different thing than just do you have a digital ID that is created. Every information system in the world, I come out of technology. I worked in video gaming for 10 years. Like we started with technology platform. Every platform in the world almost always starts with identifying the user or customer as who they are. And then that data is then stored. So we are already sharing that information. So I would say that there's no one size fits all or one holder of your digital ID. So is that fragmented digital ID system an effective or efficient way to go about identifying yourself online? And I'm thinking that even if you have governments take over the role of managing and controlling digital IDs, you have digital IDs for many different government services. And it seems that some countries, you know, have a digital ID for health, a digital ID for pension. We have an, obviously an ID for pension that easily could become digital. Is that the road that we should go down of having both multiple public and private sector actors, each with their own digital signature? Well, I think there are IDs for different things. And so to me, you sort of take a step back and you sort of say like what that is. For me to share my information with an individual group, let's say AT&T or Verizon, and for me to share my information with them to identify that I am who I say I am and set up a legal and billing relationship with them Depends on where you are, but I think that you should have your ability to do that. And that's about sort of specific choice. Your legal identification, how you identify yourself, and then your identifier for it, and how that information then is stored and shared across services that you may require from public institutions is a different setup. And they have different amounts of data that are actually required to be collected. I have a pretty lightweight thing to register for any system that I may control. And I would probably not want them to have the full complement of information about everything about me stored with them. Whereas for public services or shared services that I may be receiving from a government, then I may have greater degrees of information that may be stored with them. Either way, it really comes down to the technology infrastructure of how that information is stored, the entity with which it's stored, and also the degree of permissions and control I have over that data in the first place. It's interesting because I'm thinking about what's happening now with COVID-19 and you know I'm registering to try and get my vaccine. And at this point, I don't qualify, but they come up with a screen when you go to register saying, do you claim to be any of the groups that currently qualify and if so, check here. And I'm thinking, what happens if I check there? Who's going to actually know whether I qualified or not? And of course, if I do check there, then I'm taking someone's spot in line who otherwise should. I mean, shouldn't there be a central repository of people's identifying information so that 
something like this uh, COVID vaccine system would be able to say, aha, we know you, we know who you are, we know that you're 60 and therefore qualify, or we know you're 25 and therefore don't, or is that not a possibility? And, and uh, the other point I'd make is from my perspective, the idea that all the information I'd be willing to give to state of Maryland to make sure I get my vaccine when I'm supposed to, I'm not so sure I want to give that to Verizon or Comcast or Microsoft. Yes, and that's kind of the point I was making, that those two things are actually separate. So you started with, you know, sort of using a, let's say for folks like me, you gave a use case, like a U.S.-based use case about information around how your digital ID might be shared with a health information system, and in this case, a vaccine or immunization registry, right? So in the U.S., we do not have a national ID system, nor do we have a universal health coverage system that covers each place. And each state has its own individual information system. So we have the most fragmented information system around both national ID as well as immunization registries, I think, that exists. <laughs> I've looked at a lot of these. I used to I worked in global health. After video games, I worked in global health. If you take a country that has both A, adopted a national ID system, and B, has had that system tied to its immunization or health records, usually a country that is pursuing universal health coverage as a priority for its government, those two things usually feed one another. So as an example... Probably 30 years ago, Thailand instituted both a national identification schema and also had something which they introduced called the 20-bot schema, which then introduced and started them on their journey to universal health coverage. Those two systems, which colleagues, myself, others, many have documented, actually feed one another so that the national ID schema feeds into the health coverage and who is eligible to be coveraged by universal health coverage. That question of who is eligible and the ability to game the system would not be possible in Thailand or in most countries where the national ID system feeds into its universal health coverage information system. That does vary by country dramatically. So I'm giving an example of one I know well, but for the most part, that would not be possible in most countries. It is possible here because we have an extremely fragmented system and lack both of the core and underlying systems that would be required to make that happen. Thanks a lot, Kate. That's an excellent segue into the work that Paul's doing with the National Security Commission on Artificial Intelligence. I understand the commission just released a major report on how the U.S. can effectively leverage artificial intelligence and other digital technologies to advance its security and strategic interests. And one of the goals of a digital ID is to ensure the interoperability of different national ID systems. That way, a person from one country could easily prove their identity when they travel overseas. Paul, could you tell us some more about the technical obstacles and security risks that need to be addressed to achieve that goal? Absolutely. Thank you so much for that question. And before I dive into it, I just want to say that uh, not all the views I represent today will reflect the views of the National Security Commission on Artificial Intelligence. The NSCAI did come out with a major report earlier this month. Um, we didn't look at digital ID, but one thing that we really did focus on is how nations can collaborate with each other to advance emerging technologies in ways that would benefit international security as well as humanitarian missions. And although we didn't touch on digital ID, I think digital ID is such fascinating potential to advance various civic and humanitarian missions. But I think it's essential that as we 
explore the possibility of digital ID systems, both at the national or domestic level and internationally, that we take adequate account of the various risks that are associated. And I think interoperability points to one area of risk, which is that you need to ensure that these different technical systems that contain information on people are able to communicate with each other. And when you're talking about interoperability at an international level, it's even more complicated because it's not just a technical question. There are different legal and regulatory regimes that govern how we protect our information in different countries. And so there are many similarities right now between the United States and nations in Europe or the European Union at large. But there are also very complex ways in which we can share information and can't share information across those borders. And something I'd like to talk about, which is, you know, when we talk about data, a digital ID, cybersecurity is really at the forefront. This is very sensitive, very important information, and we need to make sure that we have robust cybersecurity procedures in place to protect the information in there. But, you know, digital ID is really something that is in many ways fundamentally political and at least societal. And we need to look at the importance of building in very strong privacy protections to these systems. And I think there are examples around the world where digital identification systems have been very effective in other examples where they haven't done as much as they should to protect the privacy of individuals. And you know, one of the things that I found very interesting in the work that we did on AI is there are so many advances right now in privacy-enhancing technologies. And I think when you're looking at these massive systems of information that are so personal and so fundamental to us as individuals across the world, that you need to build in those advanced technologies to preserve privacy from the get-go. It can't be an afterthought. It's got to be part of the system design. It's got to be part of the regulatory framework that ultimately governs these digital ID systems, both domestically and when we're looking internationally. Yeah, I did just want to add one thing to Paul's point. So I think that one of the things that often isn't considered or isn't really dealt with well, and that we tend to do when we talk about national digital ID or national financial systems or AI, is that we tend to talk about this as like, here's the topic. And then sort of like, oh, well then, okay, how do we adjust that from sort of a legislative or a policy realm? When in reality, a lot of this is about investing in the systems and the public-private partnership to get the right systems design in place, that no matter whether it's provided by a public institution or a private institution, that there's a common framework and thinking about how do we get ahead of harms that, quite frankly, we haven't even considered or thought about. Hackers, nefarious purposes, ways to abuse the data, they will always be ahead of where we are. They get a lot of time and they spend a lot of time sort of testing and pushing systems. So the more we are designing and thinking about it from like our sole and primary goal is to protect the individual and then bring public and private actors, whoever is providing the system into that conversation and then design it in at a systems level. If we start from that basis, then we can more easily attach it from a policy perspective. We can more easily attach it from like an individual trust situation and permissions and then talk about how those systems interoperate, what things should not be shared, where should they should not be shared, how much data is stored where, 
you know, then we can come at it. But right now we start more from the policy angle and then go to the system. And I can tell you technology is, we're not going to be the innovators of this. It's always going to be a technology company who's going to innovate on this first. And so we have to bring them into this. I concur with everything Kate said. Uh, there's a lot of mutual admiration here. Um, I just want to add a couple of things on top of that, which is I completely agree that we can't start these conversations just at the policy level. In fact, we need an integrated approach. And I'm a lawyer by trade. And so I often see things from the legal and the regulatory aspect. And I think you need to have the policymakers, you need to have the lawyers, you need to have the technologists, you need to have the engineers, you need to have all of those different functions in the room to work through these issues together. I completely agree. There's a lot of technology that's being developed that is absolutely critical in the private sector, in the commercial sector. There are also some technologies that aren't being funded as much as they potentially should in the private sector, where I think government can step in and say, look, and you see this on privacy. Um, there are some real significant advances in the commercial sector, but there's also a bit of a gap. And there are areas where the government can step in and say, look, we really need to apply this sort of a technology, this particular use case, so that we can move ahead with this big social project that we have in line. So maybe we could talk, Paul, about how that practically happens if you take as a premise Kate's point that you know the technologists will always be ahead of the government. So how can the policymakers ever catch up and make sure that the public value is preserved in these technologies? And I'm thinking about things like interoperability. I'm thinking about things like privacy. I'm thinking about the rents that people can extract if they are able to collect all the information that citizens have. How, you know, is this an unbalanced game where government will always be paying catch up and the technologists will always be running ahead and, and will never be able to bring this technology to its maximum social public benefit? That's a great question. You know, I think there are some areas more than others in which the government is always playing catch up. And one of the things that our commission really looked at is the public-private partnership and how the public sector and the private sector need to work better together. And that's not just for national security purposes, but even more broadly, when you're talking about emerging technologies, and we really, we need to foster that partnership in a way that other nations are, because it is critical to be able to develop the certain applications that have a public benefit. And those may be supported by the market, but they may not. And in any event, the government has an important role. I think when we're looking at something like digital ID, that just screams out for a public-private approach where you know the government itself may not be developing the sorts of technologies that you absolutely need, but they need to work with the private sector to get those in the right places. And you need to work together collaboratively on a solution. I mean, this is the sort of thing, you know. again, I'm thinking about it from a US perspective, but I can imagine in other countries where it's really essential to have a public-private partnership. And I think that if you're gonna explore more of an international approach to this, it's got to be not just nations coming together to talk about how you might create systems that can speak to each other and preserve privacy and actually generate public trust, but they need to be working as well with the private sector and ensure that the private sector, which will have a critical role in this, is developing and promoting technology that comports with whatever values it is that the public sector says are important. Hey, do you think that type of public-private partnership is possible? Thanks. I'm really excited you asked me that question because I really wanted to respond. <laughs> Not only do I think it's possible, I actually think it's already happening. So I really want to applaud, you know, a shared funder of CSISs and also of Dials, but also of the World Bank, um, but many, many other partners who are working together on the World Bank's ID for D program. So specifically on digital ID, 
They're coming together to set a shared set of principles, a shared set of components, a shared set of and kind of reach agreement and a shared set of standards that can then guide the development of ID systems wherever they may happen to fall. So I think the reality is, is sometimes when we say public private sector, it, it often tends to be, think it's centered around large U.S. tech companies. But the private sector, as I'm using this term, is actually far broader and number and can be very locally developed solutions. As an example, Thailand, you know, really needed to develop its own, and so they did. Most countries are having and setting based on either standards that they had developed internally and now shared through sort of common requirements with the ID4D program and revolutionary open source program called MOSIP, which is also sort of testing this. They're setting standards for this. They're testing what is possible. And then they'll set sort of a reference architecture. And in that, it's just sort of a guide or blueprint for other systems to actually become commercially viable. These types of things are possible, and I think many countries around the world will both adopt and then adapt those systems to then apply to themselves. And when you have that sort of shared architecture and shared reference kind of platform, it becomes much easier for new countries to add, adapt, get tested, and then share that information back into the commons to then improve the system overall. So to me, the public-private partnership is happening and is actually pretty crucial on a bunch of what we call government stack services that we believe should exist, starting first with ID, going to then data protection and privacy, looking directly at how you do government to business or government to payer benefit transfers, that that type of infrastructure that if a government sets in place in many places then can feed a whole host of new applications and services it could be used in the U.S. at a state level or in India at a statewide level as well. So I think that that kind of infrastructure opens up local innovation, but provides a set of core government services that actually will improve the digital trust, actually, between a government and its citizens, if done well. So this gets back to the issue you had brought up before, Paul, about cybersecurity. If we live in this world where digital identification has gone international and countries are using it from India to Africa to here in our systems to get the maximum efficiency or interacting with those systems and, and our data is flowing between them. How do you avoid the weakest link problem where all that data becomes easy pickings when it passes through a country with less cybersecurity than perhaps ours? And maybe even ours may not even be that great. <laughs> so I think it's a critical question, and it really points to an area where you know a lot more work really needs to be done because that's a concern. The vulnerabilities of a system that is not secure are significant, and we're talking about information that can be used for political ends. It can be used by nation-state actors, non-state actors. It can be used domestically information that can be abused, essentially. And in many ways, identification is more sensitive than you know financial information. And so we have to be very careful there. And so I think there is a lot more international work that can and should be done to try to pursue these things. And there are cybersecurity experts out there and there are technologies that need to be incorporated into these systems, but it's gonna be an issue. And I think it's gonna have to be built up piece by piece. There are certainly some nations that have digital ID systems that have proven 
very secure so far. Estonia is an example that is often cited as one that has been successful. I know the European Union is experimenting with different types of international systems of identification that may prove fruitful as well. India has had some challenges, but we need to make sure that we're cognizant of each different step here and that we do in some way leverage the expertise and also the technology that some nations may have through the private sector or the public sectors in order to, to shore up the securities and the strength of the systems in other countries that may not be as secure. So to add to Paul's point, like systems get hacked right? for the most part. I hate to, hate to say that, but for the most part, unless it's completely data gapped, it's most systems that, that get hacked. And, you know, there are multiple countries that have had their national digital ID countries. You mentioned India, um, Philippines. I'm sure there are others that may not have let us know that their system has been hacked, but probably has been. But I think that's, in fact, why working together actually matters so much. Because the larger pool you have to understand where the attacks are coming from, the better off you are to be able to protect against them. Two, I think it's about working with the private sector who has the best experts in the world to help you do this. And that includes many of large U.S. companies to kind of help do this as they deploy their resources because they're extremely talented at doing it. And then I think the third is really looking at the principles around national digital IDs and then being very specific about what it is. And that's essentially data minimization. Only one system is the systems of record are only holding small amounts of data that is actually required. A lot of consent and really building consent into the system and having that be structured in such a way that it's in place. And then thinking about decentralization and data minimization and the limited access around ability to set any of those. Those are just a couple of the concepts that then can be developed and built into systems. We won't go into technically how that works, but those are some things that are pretty critical that as you think about constructing a, a national digital ID, I'm not an advocate for putting all your information in one massive database and then making that possible for anyone to hack. But I would say that I, I don't think that most people who are working on digital ID are thinking that way either. Well, you bring up a good point. From a policy perspective, what is it the U.S. government could do to help build the capacities, create standards, disseminate best practices, especially for those middle-income and lower-income countries that may not have the technical expertise to establish the types of systems that we're talking about, but would ideally be part of a global system that would allow us to move data and, and move people and move all sorts of things fairly seamlessly. I can um, start with that. I mean, I think that if we're looking at what the United States can do in other countries to help them create digital identification systems, essentially shore up the digital infrastructure in this particular way to and improve the global digital infrastructure so that we can work with those yeah. countries and know that if our citizens are yeah. interacting with their systems, that in fact, everyone's yeah. data will be safe. Yeah, I mean, I think tackling this problem on the domestic level in other nations is critical and something that should be pursued where it makes sense. And I think that there are plenty of lessons learned out there. I think that USAID is well aware of the technology that's out there, the promise, as well as the risks. And it is an area that is very fruitful for further work. And I think that is a sliver of a much broader piece of what we call digital development, where I think the United States can be doing a lot more and should be doing a lot more to promoting safe, reliable, secure, trustworthy technologies that can actually be used to better humanity and improve civic life. 
So I would encourage the United States government to be much more robust in its efforts there to try to promote development in this sort of a way, infrastructure as well as technologies. And I think digital ID is one of those examples. And that's something actually our commission has looked at and thinks is absolutely critical given some of the trends in the world. Kate, from your perspective, are there clear steps that the U.S. government can take to screw up the capacities internationally? Um, my job is not to advise the U.S. government, <laughs> luckily, so I'll take it from this perspective, which is a sort of a general factor of what we think all countries and all governments and everyone who actually wants to basically basic services reach everyone on the planet, which I, I got to be honest, I think is everybody, because I think that it's not just a government problem or a government thing to do. It's not just a private sector problem or thing to do. Like we all play a part in this. And we break it down into what we call sort of the four P's. My marketing professors would hate me for this, but, you know, essentially four things that we think need to be overcome. You know, one is there is a product problem. What are the clear standards? What's the oh, way of building these? What are multiple options of products or digital ID products that can be reused and approved upon that can be put out there? And we do think that the U.S. government, but all governments actually should be investing in sort of enough product options and making sure that those product options are actually used and then improved based on the lessons and learnings that they have. We think that there is a policy problem. There's a big policy problem. And we always talk about it like the product is the bigger problem. It's always the policy. Like as a technologist, I'm like, I could build you kind of anything you want, right? It probably wouldn't take me that long. But as a, on the policy side, that's a lot harder because it is highly political. There is deep mistrust of the system. And we don't, in most places, have sufficient even paper laws on the books about how data is managed, much less than digital and how much faster that digital piece could work. So to me, that's actually bringing the private sector to the table wherever they may sit and ever type, and then actually really working through, like, what does it mean to do this? We are going to have a digital world. We live in a completely digital world. If this last year has not proven anything, if we can't work together to get ahead of this problem, I think we're really going to struggle. The third area that we really encourage people to focus on is actually the people. Sometimes it's capacity and people always focus on like the citizen and what the citizen could use. If you build a good system, the citizen should be able to give permissions relatively easily without it. Nobody thinks that your current user agreements that you're reading, anybody's reading them. We know they're not. So how do you make permission easy, identifiable, and actually help people really understand how to do it? But I think a bigger problem, honestly, is the fact that the people who are talking about these systems or designing the systems may not truly understand what the technology is capable of. And so you need to build, as engineers, the systems need to be a lot more understandable and relatable, and it needs to, you need to speak policymaker. And policymakers really need to understand and try and speak product a little bit better than they probably have to date. And last, but certainly not least, from our perspective, is actually how we can work together to pull financing around investing in these systems. If you are the government of Ghana or the government of Sierra Leone or the government of Sudan, you going to the market to try and procure a system, it's not going to be very cost-effective for you to do. So you're gonna put it off. So we need to really think about like, how do we actually have sufficient systems that have the protections that are useful in multiple contexts 
and then be able to pool financing together to actually enable the procurement of those systems and make sure then that they're actually instituted well and then protected because those will be the ones that are most vulnerable to attack later. So listening to you both, it seems there are a couple scenarios that could play out. One scenario is sort of a everyone for themselves type scenario where we have lots of different fragmented systems, very low interoperability, very low optimization and effectiveness. Another scenario, I think, and this is in my view, and as a non-technologist, you all can correct me if I'm wrong, is sort of what played out with the internet, where there's one protocol, everyone adopts it, and you have incredible opportunity for interaction and seamlessness. And then a third scenario seems to be where sort of the great technological powers try and battle it out and impose their system on each other, and one group sort of falls into a sphere that might be dominated by a Chinese system. One might fall into a sphere dominated by a European system. One might fall into a sphere dominated by us. I mean, I think about what the Europeans did with GDPR. And on the one hand, they sort of took their idea and imposed it on the rest of the world. Maybe that's a good thing. Maybe it's a bad, but it certainly creates a standard that is a dominant standard, but not a universally accepted one. So how do you see those scenarios playing out? And A, are there things that we can do to try and get to the scenario that seems to have worked very well, the sort of one common standard that everyone can sign into, and and how do we get there? Why don't I start with that? There's a lot there. And I think what we all want is something like the internet. But identification presents a whole bunch of issues that make it even harder to establish global interoperability than communicating over the internet. And I think you've hit on, you know, one of the reasons why, which is that there's a geopolitical dimension here and states have different interests. And this is just one of many reasons, but there's a big move in Europe right now for digital sovereignty. And they're considering a range of legislation on many issues that affect the digital world that will have repercussions around the world. And, you know, the United States is taking a different approach on a number of these issues. China is among the countries is taking yet a different approach. And so I think what we're seeing, though, is there is a lot of interest right now in engaging internationally on a number of these topics and trying to find out where we can find common solutions. I do think that China presents a different case for the United States than does Europe or many nations elsewhere in Asia. We're seeing a lot of engagement right now between the United States and India and Japan and Australia and a number of other nations in Southeast Asia. But China's different. I think it's in our nation's interest to engage in dialogue with China to the extent possible to rebuild trust. I think there are areas where that is actually potentially fruitful, where we're facing common challenges around healthcare disaster response and climate. I think what you're seeing coming out of the United States government is a real concern about how the Chinese government has used surveillance technologies around the world and has promoted what some call digital authoritarianism. And I think there's a real opportunity for the United States to work closely with allies and partners to promote responsible development and use of technologies, including technologies that could be used for digital identification, but also a broader range of technologies. But what is absolutely critical, this is something that comes out of my commission's work, but also is coming out of the United States government right now, is that technology needs to be responsible and needs to promote democratic values. And to the extent that the United States were to collaborate with China on digital ID, it would have to do the same. I think there's a real concern right now that that would be possible. I think if you just look at how China is using technologies domestically and the sorts of technologies that are coming out of China that are being used in localities around the world, 
particularly around surveillance and monitoring social credit and other sorts of issues. I think it's a real concern. And I think that if we are going to pursue a vision of international identification through digital means, it's got to be done in a way that supports democratic values, including individual rights and liberties and privacy. And I'm skeptical that that's likely right now uh, with China. Are you a little more hopeful, Kate? Or oh, am I more hopeful? Um, <laughs> it's interesting. Um, I want to go back to the framing sort of your question was like you you offered the design of the internet as being one model, and then what I would classify as sort of different data sharing principles and sort of approaches, right, as being different things and which one was going to play out. And so to me, it's a different event reflecting what Paul was talking about. They're different timings. The internet was possible in the time period that it happened because there was no real understanding of what actually should take place on top of it. And it was for information sharing, like the most interesting application that could be thought of when the internet happened was actually to share recipes. That's actually a true story, right? So we're well past the days of sharing recipes. So I would actually not frame them as different models, but as evolutions in a time period. And so what you're seeing emerge now is not about the technology itself, not the internet, not national ID, not about financial services or any one of a host of other things. It's about the use of the data that flows through those systems. And so what you then outlined, there's a distinctly sort of U.S. approach that has primarily been held within the context of the private sector with the government not taking as firm a partnership approach, a European model, which has been more government-led and with very specific structures around what the individual's rights are to do it, what's been called the Chinese approach, which has been much more like state control, right? Which is not really what Europe is doing. And then what we think is actually a fourth model, which is TBD. I happen to think that TBD is sort of what I'm particularly interested in and what I think we could help foster, which is how do you find the right balance about the use of data? And so this isn't about digital ID. Digital ID is just the tip of the iceberg. It's a key thing, but it's just the first part. It's actually about how data is used and shared. And what are the pillars around how you are going to share data to benefit society and have it be a tool to actually improve the world or have it be used as a weapon that actually hurts the world. And for your listeners, I think there's a really great book that Brad Smith from Microsoft, Spirit of Full Disclosure, ex-Microsoft employees, but wrote on tools and weapons, which actually really outlines the view kind of from the private sector. Because I think sometimes when we talk about this from a policy perspective, it's that the private sector isn't grappling with this. I actually think they grapple with it more than almost anybody because they are dealing with it daily as they are constantly attacked or having to make hard, really, really hard policy debates that are kind of, you know, not actually how they were set up or structured to do, but they're actually trying to find that balance. And I think governments and other places are also struggling with doing this. And we should all just acknowledge None of us knows how to do this. No one country in the world feels like they have this solved. And I've talked to a lot of them. So if we don't come together to find what TDD is, I think we're really all going to struggle, which is why I encourage the U.S. and other governments to engage together. 
Paul, go ahead. Yeah, I just wanted to build on that. I mean, I think the notion of trying to get nations of the world to come together to work on these challenging problems around digital is essential. I think it's got to happen. I think there's a growing chorus for this in the United States, but in other countries. And the one thing I want to emphasize is it's got to be centered around democratic values and promoting technology that is going to enhance the human experience in different ways rather than be used as a weapon to draw on Kate's great metaphor. So, you know, I think there's a lot of people who are calling for this right now. I think there's a lot of interest in it. It's something that our commission has really focused on as well. And there may be an opportunity this time. Well, we were all nodding our heads. So I think we should end on that note of open consensus. I agree wholeheartedly with you, Paul. Thank you so much for joining, Kate. Thank you as well. I think this is a wonderful conversation. I'd like it to keep on going, uh, and I'm sure there'll be many opportunities for us to revisit this in the, in the near future. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 